Welcome to the ASHG Genetically Speaking podcast. ASHG is producing this mini-series as part of their work to support the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Roundtable on Genomics and Precision Health. In this series, we'll talk to members of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Roundtable on Genomics and Precision Health. We're your hosts, Eli Robertson. And I'm Michelle Penny, the co-chair of the National Academies Roundtable on Genomics and Precision Health. And we're here today with Joyce Tung and Ryan Taft of the Roundtable's Innovation Working Group. Would you please introduce yourself? You know, Ryan, you can go first because you're first alphabetically. <laughs> Thanks, Joy. I'm Ryan Taft. I'm Vice President of Scientific Research at Illumina. My background is in genomics and computational biology, and I've been at the company for nine years. So that entire time, I've been trying to push whole genome sequencing into the clinic, um, mostly for patients with rare and undiagnosed genetic disease, but increasingly across all clinical I'm Joyce Tung. I'm VP of Research at 23andMe, a direct-to-consumer genetic testing company. We run a very participant-centric human genetics research program, which I've been doing for almost 16 years now. Excited to be here. Well, thanks for coming to talk to us today. For those who are unfamiliar, could you explain what your roles are on the Innovation Working Group, what the goals of that working group are, and how those goals fit in with the broader goals of the roundtable and in your own organizations? I can start. Uh, so the goal of this particular working group is to identify the barriers and facilitators of innovation for genomics-based diagnostics, risk assessment tools, and therapies, with the goal of making like policies, tools, and pathways that could be developed to enhance innovation in genomics and precision health. Or in fewer words, we want innovation in this field, and we want it to be high quality and responsible. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that is I think the working group in some respects is a response to the fact that we have a tremendous amount of innovation going on. Uh, we want to do some horizon gazing. We want to look at the future. So what's coming down the pipeline? And we really want to be able to foster community engagement with those innovations as they become available uh, to the general public and, and to our industry. I'll add one more thing, which is that Ryan and I are co-leads of one of these four working groups within the larger roundtable on genomics and precision health. The other ones, which you may have heard of already, are adoption, equity, and dialogue. And I think one of the things that's been kind of interesting is the intersections between the groups, right? So for example, at the end of innovation is adoption. And so there's a natural bleed over there. Um, dissemination of the information that we gain from this, this innovation working group is really part of the dialogues group's mission as well. And like ultimately innovation requires diversity of thought and experience. And so really bleeds into the diversity and equity group as well. So I think it's really interesting to me to see how these things may seem quite distinct, but there's a lot of really interesting intersections. Thanks, Joyce. That's very helpful. Um, I, I wondered if you would like to comment on how, you know, Obviously, you, you've mentioned how the goals of the innovation working group fit with uh, other working groups and, and the overall goals of the roundtable. Um, perhaps you'd like to comment um, on how the goals of your, your working group also fit with the work that you're doing in your own um, organizations day to day. Yeah, I can start with that. Um... So, you know, we started this innovation working group back in 2020. And I think 
ultimately, you know, what we realized was that the rate of change in this field, genomics, multiomics, digital health, AI, was really great. You know, back in the day, you know, after the human genome was sequenced, of course, immediately people were like, where are the benefits? You know, oh, this isn't beneficial at all. But the reality is that some of these things just take time. And I think we're really seeing a wave of the advances that are coming through that sort of leap forward in the technology. And so to some extent, we, we need the group, we need this group to be aware of what's coming and bring those findings to the wider community because that's what's really going to facilitate bringing those benefits to people. So like one example of this, one of the first activities we did was a workshop on innovators in entrepreneurship in genomics. So we, we did the session to try to hear about the experiences of people who developed forward thinking, innovative approaches to expanding the use of genomics-based applications and therapies. And kind of like, what were the challenges and opportunities that they saw? And like, when we talked about innovations, we meant things like innovative partnerships, business plans, or some sort of key scientific discovery or development, or a workaround to some of the existing naysayers, hurdles, and other kinds of conventional wisdom. So we brought in four innovators from the field, Ryan Drucker, Stephen Kingsmore, Ailajitsky, and Jessica Zeski. And they each told their stories about innovation in, in the space. And I remember I was really struck by a couple of commonalities in these stories. One, and I mean, this is probably not surprising when you're talking about innovators, is that they had this really common attitude of optimism. They really wanted to be a champion of change, to see challenges as roadblocks, not markers of failure. And this attitude, I think, really powered their persistence and resilience. The second aspect that was a little bit more surprising to me was the importance of being in the right place with the right people around them, right? There were multiple stories about people leaving an environment that wasn't supportive of the change they were promoting to find one that did actually support them. And I think there were also multiple stories of the importance of their mentors. So I think culturally, we often love to depict stories of the solo hero fighting the fight all alone. But the reality is that most successful change clearly comes from a team effort. So it was a really inspiring conversation with a lot of good messages that we want to share with others. And we are working on ways to disseminate the lessons from their stories. But having set the stage with these general ideas, we thought about where to take the conversation next. And there was a lot of enthusiasm for a suggestion that Ryan made, which was to focus on emerging technologies, which are often the catalysts of innovation. Yeah, and I can, I can, as we think about what's coming down the pike, I think a few things really jumped out at us in, in those early dialogues, positioning the group around this horizon scan. Um, the first thing was large language models, which maybe we can talk about a little bit um, further on in our dialogue, um, which are absolutely going to revolutionize medicine and precision health and genomics. Um, we're already seeing these come into play in, in some of the decision-making tools, clinical decision-making tools that are out there in the world. Uh, we're seeing Microsoft and Google get into this game. Um, and I think we all expect this to have a pretty dramatic effect on, on the work that we're doing and the rate of innovation. Uh, the second thing that came top of mind to a lot of people was liquid diagnostics and prognostics. Really this I idea that your blood is going to serve as this kind of primary repository of biological knowledge that's going to be accessible by a range of genomic and multiomic technologies that's going to tell you both about current health status and maybe future health status. 
And the third thing we've settled on as a, as a future topic is targeted uh, gene delivery um, and antisensitive like nucleotides, all of these ways that we're uh, seeing companies develop um, methodology to fine-tune gene expression, to replace genes that have been aberrant. Uh, and we're already seeing this come into the market with uh, drugs like Zolgensma uh, for spinal muscular atrophy. We're really in this period of, of heightened innovation across multiple domains. And we think the working group is is really well positioned to scan the horizon, to identify those innovations that are likely to have an impact, um, to think about what's going to be required to, to bring them into the world and, and think about all, all aspects of this, not just the innovation itself, as Joyce alluded to, but but the dialogue around that, um, the diversity and equity and inclusion issues attached to them and, and making sure we're thinking about all aspects of, of the policy landscape. Well, obviously, innovation is going to be a continuously moving target. But what do you all have in mind for maybe what the next project's going to be coming out of the working group? And do you have any ideas for what you're hoping to get done in the next year or two years? Joyce, you want me to jump in on this one? Yes, please. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. Um, so the... The next topic that we're really interested in addressing is newborn sequencing. Uh, this is an idea that's been around for at least 20 or 30 years, this idea of using whole genome sequencing to support screening and eventual diagnostics of newborns with potential genetic conditions. But it's really in the last 18 to 24 months that we've started to see that. So there's more than half a dozen um, programs all over the world. Uh, there's the Guardian program uh, in New York. Uh, there's one in Boston, BabySeq, uh, Stephen Kingsmore is championing a program. Of course, Genomics England is pushing somewhere on the order of 200,000 to 500,000 uh, newborns through a WGS, a whole genome sequencing program over the next uh, three to five years. And so we wanted to really uh, create an environment where we could have a dialogue about this technology, its potential impact, um, both in a clinical perspective, but also a societal perspective. There's a tremendous number of questions that we need to address. Um, how do we make sure that we're actually delivering the right test to these patients? That includes everything from gene selection to how we're going to think about variant curation, interpretation, and reporting, uh, how we want to think about data security and data sharing, um, what kind of social frameworks do we need to make sure in place, uh, including education of the general patient and, and family population that's going to be receiving these results and how do we make sure we're setting ourselves up for success and i, I think what we're seeing is that um, most of these programs are not setting up sequencing to replace current newborn screening practices they're setting it up to supplement and so there's a really interesting uh, dialogue that, that we need to have uh, about this um, across geographies across specialties to make sure that this implementation is, is done appropriately. Well, Trent, and too, I mean, you know, even if we think about like beyond sort of the immediate impacts to a person of being sequenced as a newborn, I think one of the really interesting aspects of this is what happens when you get sequenced at birth, you have your whole genome, and from there on, genetic testing is kind of free right? You, the results of that, you know, you already have all that information and how will you use that? How will it get used in the rest of your life? And I think it may change the way that we view testing today is like, well, you know, what needs to be true? You know, what personal or family history do you need to have before we would order genetic testing, you know, on a, on a person? 
Well, if you have that information up front, how might that change the way that we think about disease prevention or you know care of an individual throughout their lives? I think that could really change the way that we look at things in healthcare. I think it's a great point, Joyce. And just just add one more thing onto that is, are we are we ready for that? Like, do we have the data systems? Do do we have data portability in mind when we think about the implementation of these programs? Like, how do we make that vision a, a reality? And I I don't think we have answers to that yet. And I think that's part of what we hope the working group is going to start to air out. But we'll have to figure it out, right? Because I think people will want this. People will want newborn sequencing. They're going to want this for their for their children. And then the data will exist. So we're just going to have to be ready for it. Now that we have a little bit more context, I wanted to ask, uh, you mentioned uh, just earlier large language models, uh, clinical decision-making models, liquid biopsies, and the sort of next and future technologies in genomics that are ripe for innovation. They're very important areas. I'm just thinking, what stakeholders will it take to make the next big leap in these areas? And and maybe are there other areas in genomics that you feel are, are ripe for innovation here? Oh, the list of stakeholders is, is long, Michelle. <laughs> um, and I think I think we, we've seen this across all of the genomic and precision health technologies that have come online in the last, let's say, five to seven years. So I think my experience with uh, whole genome sequencing is, is kind of mapped well to this to this question and what we're going to see in the future. So, of course, there's the technology itself. Like We need to make sure that it is actually as robust as, as we hope it is and, and need it to be. Um, so that's, that's the companies that are developing it. It's the regulators that are going to assess it. Um, it's the general community who's going to have to really push on it in terms of peer-reviewed manuscripts, in terms of conferences and proceedings, et cetera, to, to make sure it is what we think it is. And in terms of large language models, I think this is going to get very complicated given the fact that we don't understand actually how some of that reasoning is, is happening behind the scenes. Um, and then as we think a little bit broader into society, of course, there's the general education of the clinician community um, who often don't understand these innovations, they, you know, it wasn't part of their medical school training. They haven't had the chance to get the CMEs. Um, and then there's that often starts with the specialist, but now we've got to get to the general community. So, so in my experience, you know, this starts with specialists and then moves often to general pediatricians or to GPs. And so that educational component, I think, is is tremendous. And then we often move into policy and payers. Um, so if we're going to have these technologies being routinely used. Uh, we have to have the evidence to move the payer landscape such that they're both um, approving it. So it's, it's actually, there's a policy in place to say this is medically necessary. And then the reimbursement frameworks are in place to actually see it get paid. Uh, and then from a policy standpoint, uh, you know, in the United States, we're, we're thinking about federal and state legislators and agencies that are going to have to put in place policies that actually support the innovation. Um, so I, I think I think for any of the innovations we've talked about that are likely coming down the pike, the large language models, let's call it gene therapies, um, and any of kind of the complex liquid diagnostics, all of those stakeholders are, are going to be involved. And I think one of the things that we think about on the innovation work group and, and talk about frequently is, is how do we make this as speedy as possible? Like that, that average time to see an innovation move into medical practice still 
is somewhere around 17 years. So, so how do we get that to five or 10 years? And I think a lot of this is getting sand out of the ears and getting much more efficient about how we think about these technological innovations, getting policies in place early in their development, um, having the innovators themselves start to think about what's going to be required in terms of that evidence uh, to actually see it, you know, widely used by the medical field. Did I answer your question, Michelle? Yes, thank you very much. Very comprehensive. You're right. There are a lot of stakeholders. I think it's not just a lot of different stakeholders, but they really come from different experiences, priorities, values. You know, I mean, being in Silicon Valley and like being more at the intersection of sort of that Silicon Valley tech culture, but also more of like a healthcare culture or a biotech culture. You see it all the time. That's these are very different backgrounds and experiences, and there's often like a translation component. Like, what are you talking about? You know, and totally different perspectives that I think make some of this challenging. And so, you know, over the years, you know, you can see some of these tech folks saying like, "Listen, we're just going to come over and disrupt healthcare the way like we've disrupted everything else." But healthcare is different, right? Like, if you come up with a new way of doing things and you accidentally recommend the wrong socks or you accidentally send the wrong socks to somebody like that's not a big deal but if you recommend the wrong treatment you send somebody the wrong medication that's a big fat hairy deal right and so i think there really is something a little bit different and i think we need to like cross educate each other because i do think that like science medicine healthcare has a lot to learn from this much more you know, tech-focused and consumer-focused world as well. So I think Joyce had mentioned earlier that mentorship has been an, an important theme through the one of the workshops you gave. And we know that some of the discussions between the innovation and equity working groups have talked about how important strong mentorship is. What does good mentorship mean to the two of you as far as what type of mentorship do you seek for yourself and do you want to give others? And do you have any advice for identifying who might be a good mentor if someone was looking? It's a great question. I think I've never really thought about what exactly I should look for in a mentor, you know, but just trying to reflect back on the people who have been great mentors in the past. You know, I mean, ultimately, they've always been people who actually cared about my success, right? They they were they cared about me developing into being a more capable, more confident person, as opposed to like their own needs, you know? Um, and I think that they, they provided guidance, but didn't do things for me. Right. And I think you, you think about it a lot. There's so many challenges that everybody tries to navigate as they make their way through life or through a career. And how often are we trying to reinvent the wheel right other people have gone through these things right they figured out what kind of works and what kind of doesn't and instead of you wasting a lot of time and energy like bumbling around you know trying out things that other people have tried having somebody to just give you some advice to point you in the right direction to give you a little bit of support you know like other people have failed here too it's okay you know you can keep going i mean ultimately I think they're the people that give you the confidence to keep going and like also help you put and invest your energy and time into what is hopefully the most productive channels. That all really resonates with me, Joyce. 
I mean, when I, when I think about the mentors I've had, I, I wouldn't have said like, I, I went and like, I had a checklist and this is the mentor I want. It's, it's more organic than that. But, but reflecting on it now, I do think I'm, I'm often looking for people who have, who have done it, right? They've, they've pushed the envelope. They've done something that somebody thought was impossible. They've shown some resilience. I mean, those are, those are the characteristics that really jump out at me. And then Joyce, I think to your, your point, like there's a, there's a clear generosity in a good mentor, right? They're, they're willing to be honest with you about what worked and, and what didn't. Um, they're willing to make contacts if you need them. Uh, they're there when you've hit a rough patch and they'll coach you through it. And some of the best mentors I've had have actually told me when to quit. Like, that's that's enough. You've gone far enough. There's nothing else to do here. Like, put it down, move on to the next thing. Um, so I think I think those are some of the... It's a great question, Eli. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we if we go back to this question of equity, I think a lack of equity and access to great mentors is part of the issue, right? If you're in a community where, you know, there aren't a lot of people who are who have taken the path that you're taking, right? And maybe you're uncomfortable reaching out to the people that have taken that path because, you know, you don't feel like you have a lot in common with them. I mean, I do think that makes your your job a little bit harder. And so, you know, I often look at the people who have come from a family where nobody else went to college, you know, or they came from a small community where there was no science really involved, or, you know, they had to overcome language barriers or, you know, being, you know, part of some other underserved group to get where they are. They really probably had to overcome quite a bit more than the people who might guidance and support all the way from, you know, being a student to where they are professionally. I mean, everybody has challenges and struggles, but like, what kind of community do you have around you to support you? Thank you very much. I think that they were very um, insightful answers. And and I will also reflect actually, just generally from my experience on the round table, the round table itself is a very diverse group um, and is actually a rich source of mentors. I have learned a lot from many of the people on the round table with me. Um, over the years, um, and, and Ryan and Joyce, yourselves included, I think, um, you know, being available to people who come to the workshops and come to the discussions, I think is really, really valuable. So, um, yes, thank you. Thank you very much for, for those uh, interesting answers today. Maybe just one last comment on mentorship. This is, uh, this is the Innovation Working Group. You know, what what I hope we uh, can develop, uh, you know, maybe supported at least uh, philosophically or in principle by the roundtable is uh, an increased network, you know, across our field um, that allows people to connect, right? So if there's somebody who needs a mentor, if there's a way to reach out to folks like those on the roundtable, I think we need to figure out some ways to, to develop that. It's, it's a little, I think there's some efforts in their nascency, but I think we can do um, so that the next generation can can reach out to folks like those on this podcast and say, how'd you do it? How'd you get there? What worked and, and what didn't? That's a great point, Ryan. I mean, I think ultimately, if we see ourselves as trying to support and promote innovation, a lot of that comes from the 
place where two worlds collide. And so having a diversity of thought, a diversity of experience, that's like a critical catalyst to coming up with new ideas. Well, thanks so much to both of you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having us. This concludes today's podcast. In the next episode, we're going to talk about the essential work of the adoption working group within the roundtable. Thank you for listening.